Welcome back to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, as you know, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded individuals working to shape our city. On today's episode, we have Chelsea Jerzak, the founder and principal of Situate, an urban planning consulting firm in Edmonton, offering rezoning, permitting, subdivision, and strategic advisory services for infill projects across the city. Chelsea holds a bachelor's degree in regional and urban development and a master's degree in human geography. She is a registered professional planner and a certified project management professional. She's also currently the infill development in Edmonton's president, our ideas president, and is the past director of Alberta's District Council of the Urban Land Institute, ULI. For all of those who don't know that organization, it is great for education. And a founding member and past coordinator of the Child-Friendly Housing Coalition of Alberta, which we get into in today's episode. Also, Chelsea is recognized as one of Edmonton's top 40 under 40 for Edify Magazine and our in-development podcast is now becoming the hotbed for all of our top 40 under 40 people. So yay us. We know all the cool cats in town. Yeah, and they love us too, definitely. So I I really like Chelsea. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Chelsea is the reason that I got involved with Idea to begin with when I was first going out on my own and wasn't really sure how to even start that. I approached her because she had a successful business running already. And I asked her, what do I do? Please help, send help. And she said, the first thing she said was join Idea. She got me in touch with you. I think you and I went and had a coffee at Dosk and look at us now three years later. <laughs> yeah, because of that, we successfully pulled off the education program. Yeah, all thanks to Chelsea and that first meeting. So we're giving her a platform to talk about what she likes. But uh, yeah, she actually helped develop this platform. I don't know if she even knows that. So yeah, really exciting. Um, there's some things that we're going to talk about in the podcast episode that we should define. It's only a couple things today. The first, um, Avonmore. I gushed a little bit about Avonmore in the episode. Um, it's a neighborhood in kind of east-ish side Edmonton. Uh, it's on both sides of 83rd Street and just south of White Ave and Bonnie Dude Mall, which is undergoing a underwent a huge planning exercise to rethink what Bonnie Dude Mall is going to be, other than you know a Oh, I don't want to say dying mall just in case anybody loves that that's listening. But my great aunt definitely goes there for walks because it's uh, fairly empty. Let's just say that. Um, but the LRT is coming right down 83rd Street, right in the middle of Avonmore. It's a neighborhood that's kind of in upswing of the usual cycles. You know, the the cycle where you get uh, lots of people moving in right away. This would have been in the 70s for Avonmore. And then over time, as kids age out and the population declines, but now it's starting to go in the upswing again. They have haven't lost their school. Their school actually has, I don't know if they still do, but they had adult classes run there at night. So if you wanted to go and do like dance classes or uh, cooking classes or other kind of uh, adult oriented classes, the, the Avonmore School actually did those for a long time. And the the age distribution in Avonmore is really interesting. So their second and third largest uh, cohorts for age is seniors and pre-retirement age people. So that kind of shows where it's at in its evolution. But to me, that just screams ripe 
for redevelopment and infill. Oh yeah, it does. I also love Avonmore and uh, we were very kindly offered the opportunity at Idea to send one of our board members to go talk to the Community League uh, about infill, what's the good, the bad, what should they be uh, cautious of as they did a strategic vision uh, session for their uh, wonderful, beautiful neighborhood. So thank you to that community for having us out. And if you are from a community and you'd like to have idea out, uh, just send me an email. I would love to help set that up for you. So the other thing that we wanted to define for you before we get into today's episode is urban isolation. And uh, this is something that urban planners talk quite a lot about. When you design a city or design a neighborhood or a street, you can design it to be people focused, uh, bring communities together, have windows facing each other, have balconies facing each other, have uh, front verandas and front porches, really designed to have these like kind of meet cutes that that you hear about in movies. Um, I don't know if you watch the holiday (laughs) over the Christmas breaks, but they talk about meet cute. Uh, And that's kind of, you can design for it or you can design in a different style, which creates urban isolation. And that's kind of been seen through these more suburban style, like post 1950s style communities, um, where we really prioritized how we moved with uh, around a city using a car instead of walking around, biking around, using horses like we used to do back back in the day. But because of that, now we have really, really private spaces, you know, you get into your car, you go to work, go to the grocery store, go drive your kids to all their different classes go take a class at the Avonmore school, dance your heart out, and you come home, get into the garage, walk through your backyard with your tall fence that you don't see your neighbor, and into your house you go, and uh, that's creating an urban isolation issue. So yeah, that's it's a bit problematic, and we're trying to turn that around in many major cities around Canada and other and North America. And the funny part is, so when I was Pulling up the definition, and sorry, it's a very long-winded rant. CBC in 2019, uh, in March, wrote an article on urban isolation. And the writer of the article, Tom, he called it a virtual pandemic. Yeah, I don't think he could say that anymore. It means something completely different now than when he wrote that article, I think. Yeah, 100%. And I don't think a lot of people outside of the urban planning realm really think about development in that way. Uh, But you can really create healthy communities, uh, both mentally and physically, if you design it in the right way. Uh, But it's a big shift from how we're designing them now. And according to Dr. Murthy, who is the United States Surgeon General under President Obama, Loneliness can lead to an increase of heart disease, anxiety, depression, and dementia. In stark terms, it is the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So who would have known that development and the way we plan our city is so important? Uh, I guess it's just me and you, Ryan. (laughs) Yeah, who knew that loneliness was the same as smoking cigarettes too? That's crazy. I like that as a comparison. Uh, But yeah, anyways, let's get into today's discussion. Hello, both of you. Good morning. And thank you to everyone who's listening in. This is our first episode for 2022. And behind the scenes, we do a little chat before. uh, And so Ryan and I were talking to Chelsea Jerzak, our guest for today. Ryan just said something so lovely. He said the city is for everyone. And that is kind of where we're starting off in our conversation today. So Chelsea, I know that you helped to found an initiative called the Child Friendly Housing Coalition. 
How did that all get started? Tell me about it. Sure. Thanks, Mariah. So the Child-Friendly Housing Coalition was um, a group that formed in 2016 to address the fact that children at the time were not allowed to live with their parents in a rental and condominium accommodations in Edmonton. So basically what that meant was that condominium corporations could write into their bylaws age restrictions and uh, rental companies renting buildings could also uh, restrict their buildings to be 18 plus or 25 plus or 40 plus, uh, however, whatever they saw fit. Uh, so this, for us, uh, the small group of concerned individuals, was an issue or was a bit of a city building problem uh, because building a city for everyone takes everyone, means everyone needs to be able to live in you know, downtown areas, uh, in the center city. These, these restrictions applied even around buildings that surrounded school sites um, in Oliver. So not helpful for keeping our school enrollment up in mature neighborhoods, which already have sometimes a challenging time uh, with school enrollment. So uh, a bit of an issue from a few different lenses. Uh, so a group of concerned individuals met one wintry evening uh, in someone's uh, living room in a condo in Oliver to talk about how we might uh, want to address that problem and the coalition was born. Well, that's lovely. You uh, you skipped into some of my next questions about why it's important, uh, but I'll, I'll get into that more. Uh, who are some of the other people that you worked on the initiative with? Sure. Well, the MLA for the area was involved, uh, David Shepard. We had people from the Community League involved as well. We had some city planner type folks involved. Um, we had just people that uh, lived in apartments or condominiums that were impacted by this. Um, we have a current councillor actually that's on city council that was involved as well, who had been impacted by these restrictions. So a handful of people that were very active and engaged and kind of wanted to figure out how to change this problem. Yeah, and I did a little digging on you before. I believe it started in 2017, which was very timely for me. Uh, that is when my partner and I were starting to look to buy a condo downtown. And one of the units that we really loved, it had this like gorgeous balcony space, this hardwood floor, it was in our budget. And then we were told it was an 18 plus building. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. And we walked away from it because we wanted to buy it and rent it out in the future. And it was just so was so limiting to how people could use the space. I like I didn't understand it at all. So literally the time I was looking <laughs> at buying, the reason I walked away from a, a space was what you were working on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got into a bit about the school conversation. What else sparked your interest in uh, getting involved in the initiative? Why is it so important to bring kids into multifamily buildings in downtown and apartment buildings and all the jazz? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think that there are some city building reasons for me. I'm really interested in, you know, how cities are, are shaped and making sure that they're equitable from a human rights perspective. Ultimately, this became a human rights issue. Um, so we, the coalition ultimately was able to change the Alberta Human Rights Act. Um, there were a number of sort of forces going on at that time that it made that possible. So ultimately, that was successful. 
from the human rights angle. And I had worked on this also from a municipal angle, working for the city of Edmonton. There were some interest in how do we encourage three-bedroom units, for example, in downtown buildings. But it seemed like the root of the problem wasn't necessarily encouraging three-bedroom units, but liberating our existing housing stock. So we have all these buildings already, you know, two and three-bedroom units that aren't available to families with children or, you know, single parents with children, etc., that we really needed to sort of address. Uh, For me, it was also personal. I'm not uh, a parent myself, but I grew up with a single mother and and we we lived in apartment buildings. And so I spent a lot of time growing up in apartment buildings. And I think for me, it was just something that was really close to my heart. You know, that was an affordable housing option for me growing up, for my mom growing up. Um, we couldn't afford a house until I was a little bit older. So it was something that was really uh, important for me and part of my stable upbringing. So I also saw friends of mine that, you know, were not able to stay in their home living in Oliver or downtown. And it, it was a little bit heartbreaking as well. So I think there was the professional side for me, like how do we build a great city, but also these personal aspects of, well, like this hit pretty close to home. And I think it's something really important for us to be able to provide housing options for everyone in all parts of the city. Yeah, so we, we danced around a bit about the success story of what ended up happening. But what was the outcome? Where is it now? Yeah, uh, so the Human Rights Act uh, did change. So that came into effect in January of 2018, which is already four years ago, just hard to believe. So what changed is that... Uh, rental buildings needed to drop their age restrictions immediately. So that came into immediate effect. Uh, so if you are going out and looking to rent a building and there's an age restriction advertised, that's um, no longer legal. So you can contact um, the Alberta Human Rights Commission and file a complaint about that. Uh, with regard to condominiums, they were given 15 years to transition into either uh, a 55 plus seniors building or to drop the age restriction. So Uh, Still a little bit of time left uh, in the timeline that I think clock ticks until 2033. And then at that time, condominiums also uh, will have to transition over to being either one or the other. That is so freaking exciting. We met in 2017 and I remember celebrating the outcome of this. Like, yeah, (laughs) four years flies by. So 11 years more is a long time, but hopefully it doesn't, it won't affect too many more people. Hopefully, yes. And also new buildings um, cannot be created with an age restriction. Uh, So any new building that goes up throughout Edmonton or throughout Alberta cannot have an age restriction apply. So this sort of grandfathering till 2033 uh, applies to older buildings that have a restriction currently in place written into their condo bylaw and that will have to be updated or revised uh, by 2033. Where do we go from here? I mean, now that this is kind of a win by 2033, is is the next passion project to start getting dogs allowed in all downtown buildings and condominiums as well? Because they still seem to be outlawed. That's why I had to move away from downtown. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because while we were working on this um, in 2017, there were a group of folks working in Ontario to advocate for the end of pet restrictions. So here we are, were in, you know, Alberta working on allowing humans in buildings and they were, you know, were so far advanced past that they were working already on our furry friends. So, you know, I think that probably is, is the next frontier. Certainly in new buildings, pet restrictions are far less common than they are in the older ones. I, I could see that transitioning, but that is the next frontier and other provinces are already tackling it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that happening here too. 
I'm curious, both of you live in apartment-style housing. Uh, are pets banned in your buildings? A few years ago, my condo board uh, revised its bylaws to make it so that large pets were not allowed uh, over a certain weight. I tried to fight it, but didn't have enough exciting, pe- excited people on the people who showed up to, to uh, vote, which part of my job is to get people excited to come vote on things. So I, I could have done a better job. But yeah, it was really frustrating to see that come in because I had this l- like literally the best neighbor ever and her apartment got flooded. And so she went away, they redid the whole thing. Uh, she came back with a dog and the dog was too big. And so then she had to leave. And so now she's rented out to great people, but I really miss her. She was so fun. And it was all because of our stupid pet bylaw changes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we have the same in the building that I live in. Uh, pets are restricted, no pets at all. So it's, yeah, I mean, it is, it's unfortunate. Yeah, the building that I uh, used to live in downtown, um, when I first joined, I, I joined the board just to kind of see what it was about, see where my fees were going. And uh, at one meeting, we were revising our bylaws too. And at one meeting, there was a couple of the kind of original owners and my building was, it was built in the 70s. So you can imagine what I mean by that. But they were trying to put restrictions on families. They said, you know, some of these, because we had two bedroom units and in a lot of ways, they thought that, you know, certain people people were coming in here with way more than two people and what happens if they're all you know flushing their toilets and using the showers at the same time it's unfair that me as a single person in my unit has to pay for everyone else's water it was kind of eye-opening event that that got shot down and some of these people have transitioned out but our building still outlaws pets so not to take over the conversation about pets but our building allows families and there's a couple that live there and they play out in the front really in an unsafe area so you know we can talk about what amenity space for family looks like but at least they're allowed in my building so someday i'll be allowed a pet in there but not anytime soon at least kids are allowed maybe this conversation will spark someone who's really passionate about it and we can get them in touch with chelsea and they can share the success stories of how to get the change happening yes if you're listening please get involved with chelsea that's a pretty good place to transition into your other passion project which is infill development you were one of the if not the first planning consultant locally solely focused on infill development where did that come from Yeah, so I started my company, uh, which is called Situate in 2016. And, you know, at the time, I was in transition. So when I started, when I started the company, I, you know, I'm a planner, obviously, my background, my, my, my training and trade is in planning. So when I was starting this planning company, I wanted to figure out how to start something that was necessary and was needed. So I had worked uh, on some infill-related files um, as a planner for the city of Edmonton, so I knew a little bit about the issues. Uh, So I decided to focus on infill because there's a lot of planning firms out there that have really great expertise um, in all of the other areas. So that includes, you know, developing neighborhoods as well as, you know, long range and strategic planning projects. But I noticed that there wasn't a lot of support for the smaller projects, maybe small scale infill, medium scale infill, local businesses, smaller businesses. 
uh, doing incremental development. So I sort of positioned myself there. And I thought that there was potentially a need for support in that area. And as it turns out, um, I was right. (laughs) There is a need for support in that area because infill, as I'm sure listeners to this podcast are aware, does have some interesting challenges associated with it. So uh, we focus on sort of navigating those challenges, navigating the approvals process specifically. You know, it's getting easier, but fortunately or unfortunately, our services are still in uh, in demand. So uh, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future, we'll, we'll be around and helping small and medium scale businesses get their work done. Sweet. Yeah, you tiptoed around something that I'm going to question you about in a second. But first, I want to know where did the name Situate come from? What does it mean to you? Most consultants and developers name their companies after their children or something like that. But uh, what does Situate mean to you? Yeah, so Situate for me was a name that's kind of connected to this idea of place and being rooted in a particular place of a local solution that's rooted in the local context. So I wanted something that sort of spoke to that a local flavor, to that rootedness. And Situate is, uh, you know, a snappy little name that I thought encompassed a little bit of that idea. So that's, that's how we arrived at that name. So as you've uh, worked on infill projects throughout Edmonton, the infill story has kind of evolved. Uh, I've seen it evolve personally from my job, from a lot, a lot of small scale issues that uh, we've needed to work through as a city. Now we're having conversations around medium scale infill and commercial infill, what that means to communities, what it can do, what's some of the barriers, what's some of the challenges. (laughs) So have you seen that reflected in uh, the people that you're working with, the projects that they're moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you encapsulated what's going on really well. I think the infill conversation has, you know, really morphed over time. The conversation is really growing and maturing and broadening, I would say, in scope and in scale. In terms of, you know, what we do, I think the small scale infill at this point in Edmonton has become sort of the normal, the normal thing, almost the expected thing. And and that's wonderful. You know, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. We've definitely seen that evolution and change happening over time. And then particularly in the last three to five years, there's been this acceleration towards towards medium scale. So that looks like more more row housing, more small scale apartment buildings, four to six stories. And I think that's definitely the next frontier now in Edmonton is, is that conversation and how, how we normalize um, that next phase of infill development and what that looks like. We've also done a great job, you know, um, both IDEA and of course CA Garden Suites around um, suites, garden suites uh, in particular. And that's, I think we're, Edmonton's really a leader in that area because of the excellent, excellent work of groups like IDEA and Gay Garden Suites just really getting out there and making a case for this kind of small scale development. So I think we're really well positioned there. And now um, the next phase is definitely moving towards, as you say, medium scale, more mixed use um, at that medium scale as well as neighborhood commercial, um, which, you know, the examples that we see of that that are scattered throughout Edmonton are just so popular, uh, such a great, you know, such great places and spaces to be um, that I think that that's helping to really uh, change perceptions around what neighborhood commercial can be and what it can look like and how it can function as a as a gathering place. Yeah, I was telling Ryan right before um, we jumped into this recording, there was this one woman in Avonmore. They, she's a community member. She's lived there forever, but she's seen that 
Richie has their school has increased in local population. She's seen what the businesses have been able to do for the area, how it's become vibrant and fun. You have a place to go get coffee, go get a glass of wine. And so she invited IDEA, the Infield Development and Edmonton Association, to come and like speak at the community league to say, hey, we're trying to bring this vibrancy into our neighborhood. We're trying to get local infill, commercial infill into our neighborhood because that's what we're excited about. And we understand that the only way for that to be successful is to come with density, to come with infill, uh, residential infill. And so to see communities start to like make that connection is just like my favorite thing. Like, I just think it's so beautiful and so exciting because <laughs> we'll never get there if they don't understand that that's the only recipe that works. Like that's how, that's how you make the cake. <laughs> Avonmore yeah. is interesting because they, they have the train now, the, mm-hmm. the infrastructure for the train anyways, even though it's not running yet, but the train's there and they have this really cool little commercial plaza that is just, it's just ripe for something like, like Richie Market or something. It's right in the center of their neighborhood, right next to the school and community league. And now a train is like four blocks away. Oh, I think it's coming for Avonmore. You can... I hope that uh, that person's listening that you're mentioning there because I feel I feel like Avonmore is ripe for it. Yeah, it's glittering on the horizon there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the community is just like so important to the process. Um, I hope that they feel that way. I, I know, Ryan, you and I talk a lot about engagement. I do. Yeah. Thanks for starting that off. So, I mean, the conversation has evolved quite a bit. There's still neighborhoods out there fighting lot splits and sub and semi-detached and that kind of thing but overall most neighborhoods have kind of embraced it like you mentioned chelsea but your uh company situate focuses on an engagement first process so how do you do meaningful engagements for infill which is such a divisive topic especially now that we're accelerating into the medium scale yeah i mean i I would actually call it communication what we try to do is be really really open and very very communicative about what it is that we're proposing to do i think engagement is something that happens at a more of a strategic level where people are asked for their opinion and their input into a strategic planning process when it comes to implementation engagement becomes more difficult we're used to using that word but Often at that point, the the strategy is set. And so we're not engaging about the direction that we're going. Really, what's happening at that point is um, communicating the story around why it is that we're making this application, what's going on here, how it uh, fits with our overarching strategy, and uh, why it might be beneficial for the community, like what's what's in it for the community. We try to be really, really open about that. Um, we've started implementing some uh, communication strategies that I think are somewhat unique still at this point in Edmonton. So we now create web pages for, for all of our projects. Um, we do mail drops to the surrounding neighbors and direct them to the web page so that they can find out, you know, who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Uh, we answer frequently asked questions there. We've been putting up custom signs as well on the sites so that those signs have the URL to the web page, just because I think as humans, we're very, very uncomfortable with uncertainty. Uh, so we try to reduce that as much as possible and let people know what's going on, when it will be happening, um, and who to talk to, you know, it's, it can be very frustrating to know that something's happening, but not know what it is, not know who's doing it, not know where to go or who to talk to. Uh, so what we're trying to do is really 
address all of those issues, reduce uncertainty, and and communicate as much as we possibly can with people. So all of that really, I think, boils down to being a good neighbor. Um, that's something that, you know, the city of Edmonton has talked a lot about in their infill strategies, and it's something that us in the industry can really do as well. So we've taken it upon ourselves to try to elevate the communication process a little bit. Yeah, and I'm sure that's made huge strides and that you never have anyone coming to oppose you at anything because it's all done perfectly. Oh, they definitely come and oppose, but at least they knew about it. <laughs> so, you know, oftentimes, you know, what we've heard at public hearing is, well, we just found out, we didn't know, um, we need more time. And so people will still come and they'll be uncomfortable. I mean, change is uncomfortable. I think there's no way around that. Um, and it's okay to acknowledge that change is uncomfortable. And these changes sometimes are significant. Um, so that's okay. I think people will still come out and um, express, you know, themselves. And that's, that's okay. What what we really do want to ensure is that questions are answered uh, in advance of a public hearing, you know, if people have formulated them in advance, then you know, we're happy to have those conversations. Uh, we're happy to have a virtual open house and and get into a, a room or a virtual room to talk about these things because there's a lot going on in the city of Edmonton right now. And, you know, if, if you're just living in a neighborhood and you're not tuned in, you're not, you know, a professional planner or would consider yourself tuned into the Twitter conversations around urbanism in Edmonton, probably you don't know what city plan is or how that applies to your neighborhood or what that means or what changes are coming down the pipeline. So part of our role, I think, as planners working you know, in the private sector is to communicate some of that, uh, some of those changes, but there's a lot going on. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I remember when I first uh, got into the into the private sector industry that it was um, engagements were used to try to convince people of your way, that it was the right way to go and that kind of thing. So I, I feel like it's evolved beyond that and, and more of kind of a, a two way dialogue more so than here's what we're doing. And this is why it's good. And just just trust us, we know what we're doing. So I am happy about that. I just have kind of a loaded question for you here. But what's the single biggest hurdle if you can kind of narrow in on a hurdle of infill development? We've talked about a few of them, but I'd like to hear what your take is. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to narrow it down to one single thing. I think there's challenges around the uncertainty still around implementation and approvals. Um, so there's a sense of, you know, the policy might support it, but I'm not sure how council will vote or how the development officer will receive this application. So there's uncertainty there and that plays a role in the process in a big way. Uh, as we know, I think I think you've talked about on previous podcast episodes uh, we have infrastructure challenges in Edmonton, so there are some you know, big expenses that have to be borne by a proponent of a project uh, to upgrade existing infrastructure. So that might be relative to a rezoning process that is being undertaken or even, or even building a building under existing zoning, so when no rezoning process is, is, is going on at all. So those, those are challenges, and we haven't yet found a holistic solution. We're working really, really hard. Uh, I know IDEA is working really, really hard on that, but we're still not quite there. So I know um, as the conversation of infill evolves, community um, and people working at the city and well, generally just people outside the industry understand the barriers uh, or why small scale infill is so expensive. 
I think there was uh, conversations at the beginning that it would help with affordability, but not quite understanding that affordability means different things in different contexts. Um, and so we look at like uh, lots are very expensive in mature neighborhoods. Working around existing infrastructure is very expensive. The zoning bylaw did not work for small scale infill five, <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, there was lots of uncertainty at council. You're not building 20 or 400 houses, so you don't have the ability to buy 20 or 400 windows. You're buying seven, and so <laughs> your buying power is way less. Um, you don't get to schedule things when you want because your timelines are based on the city's timelines, so you don't get your first choice in contractors which means uh, you don't get your first quotes always. Um, and then if anything has showed us over the past two years, supply chain issues come up and costs and materials change all the time. You touched a little bit about medium scale and the challenges around that. Is there things outside of the what makes small scale expensive and uncertain that medium scale just has a totally different ballgame that people should be aware of that you understand and that maybe my mom wouldn't understand. We specifically call her out because she listens to the podcast. Like multiple times. This isn't the first time you brought up your mom. <laughs> you listen to every single episode. I love it. I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, one thing that I've noticed just recently is around medium scale in particular. So when I talk, when I say medium scale in the Edmonton context, I'm talking about four to six stories, because that's what we have zones written for, a medium scale, realistically, and as defined in Edmonton's district planning project process is five to eight stories. But our medium scale zones right now are either sort of four stories or six. Uh, a challenge around, around those zones is that we have moved towards uh, open option parking in Edmonton, which means that parking is no longer required. The so minimum parking requirements don't exist anymore. So you could theoretically build a building with no parking at all. Uh, just have, you know, the building on and, and, and yard area, landscaped area all around and no parking at all. We culturally, this isn't something that's quite yet a norm or acceptable to the majority of people. And most of us still you know, drive at least some of the time. So parking does still come up as an issue to be addressed in some way, shape or form. Uh, so what we're finding is on small lots, so in infill situations, a small site would be, you know, one to three lots um, combined. So think about a house that's one lot, um, a good site sort of would be three lots. Um, so that's a, still a pretty small site when it comes to building a building on it. Um, so on these pretty small sites, it's not a very big building that's getting built there at the end of the day. So in order to, for example, provide something like underground parking, which is probably desirable for the community and might also be desirable for the people that are going to be living there too, uh, six stories seems to be what people are really looking to be able to build to be able to then afford uh, the cost of an underground parkade. Underground parking um, is something that's really, really, really expensive to build at a four-story level. 
Um, typically what will be going in is just surface parking. So the trade-off then becomes, okay, for two extra stories, potentially we could get an underground parkade. Um, and is it, is it worth it? So is it like, what, what would I rather have, you know, fewer cars and a smaller building or more cars on the surface and a smaller building or a taller building and then cars underground. And so these are um, some, some trade-offs that we're starting to talk about when it comes to medium scale development in the mature community on small lots. Uh, so I think, I think we'll see more of that conversation happening. It's what, like, what, what do we want? What are we looking for? Um, what's preferable? And that might change from neighborhood to neighborhood. But I, I think that that's a challenge of how do we, you know, we're still a city where a lot of people drive. So how do we accommodate that? And is it, uh, is it a problem that we, we need to worry about? I, I think these are all uh, emerging conversations. Another thing I'll say about it is underground parking, because it's really expensive, especially for a small building, inevitably, it's going to make building the building more expensive. Uh, so the cost of that parkade is being bred over a finite amount of units in that quite small building. And so that's going to make those units more expensive for the people that are going to end up living there. So um, that's a part of the conversation too, that I think we need to, to capture is, you know, yes, parking is very convenient. Um, however, there are, there are these trade-offs, like there's an affordability trade-off, more, more cars being accommodated on site will lead to a more expensive building. And ultimately that the, the building, you know, the expense of the building is being covered by the people who are living in that building down the line. So affordability is something we also have to keep our eye on when it comes to these conversations. Yeah, I, I think it's all part of like that evolution of the conversation of what kind of missing middle do we want? Do we want just luxurious apartment buildings everywhere that won't fit the majority of people's needs? Or are we looking for different types of like homes for people to live in, like with different storage opportunities, different parking? Uh, is there commercial on the bottom? Uh, is there large windows? Like these are all trade-offs. Uh, they have sustainability trade-offs. They have uh, affordability trade-offs. They have design trade-offs. And some are more appropriate for other areas of the city and some aren't. But that's the conversation I think industry is having and we need to bring along community as so that they understand where decisions are getting made and and why things are happening. Yeah, because I think everyone wants a lot of natural light, big beautiful windows, but dang is that expensive to heat and does not create a tight envelope uh, to make more sustainable housing and more sustainable buildings. So are we looking to tackle climate goals? Are we looking to have beautiful apartments that make us mentally happy? So like, how do we ride that balance as we grow as a city? Every development is different and solves different needs, but we'll all have to tackle climate change. So we've got to figure it out. <laughs> Both of you are sitting next to big, beautiful windows, I think I should point out after you said that. I si I'm sitting in a basement with no windows around me. Like, I am ready for this climate change thing. You two are sitting next to big windows, letting out all <laughs> kinds of heat. So are you not as mentally happy as Chelsea and I are? Is that what you're saying, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, we won't get into that. I'm not the one. I'm the one that asked the questions here. Okay, Mariah. So let's, let's move on there. Um, 
you touched you touched on um, city plan a little bit here. Uh, you tweeted out, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, that you know maybe the missing middle isn't going to be missing anymore because the new council seems to be in favor of implementing city plan. What's kind of important from city plan for for infill development to thrive? I might not have been asked mm-hmm. properly, but uh, in terms of city plan implementation, what's important for infill development in that document? Right. So, you know, I think it really comes down to council decision making in a major way. So we have the roadmap now. I think we have a lot of buy-in across the city for that roadmap. Uh, City plan gets talked about in everyday conversations in a way that I don't think any previous plan has ever been talked about. It has a lot of traction. And I, you know, I heard a lot of councillors during the campaign as well, talking about city plan and really campaigning on the basis of city plan and 15 minute districts. That's reflected in their conversations now. You know, I think we have a council that's really serious about it. Um, But strategic plans are one thing and implementing strategic plans are, uh, you know, an entirely different thing. It's a different challenge. Those uh, implementation decisions are made day by day by day. You know, there's thousands of them that will lead to actually implementing city plan. It's not just passing that plan. It's all of the decisions that come, you know, in the wake of passing that plan. And so I like what I'm hearing from council in terms of their dedication to the plan. But really, um, those decisions are many um, and manifest and will need to be made over a pretty long period of time in order for us to implement city plan, because that's going to be implemented incrementally through small incremental changes. So uh, the post that I made was a sort of in celebration of two uh, medium scale projects that council approved at city council rezonings. And and I think that it was a strong uh, endorsement for city plan because it was aligned with policy. And yet those decisions um, aren't easy to make in everyday life, in everyday decision making. So, um, so I think it's I think it's a positive step in the right direction and sends an important message um, that city plan is going to get implemented through the myriad and many decisions that council will be making over the next many, many years. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the, the stuff that gets brought to council comes from two different angles a lot. So some internal things like, you know, district planning and zoning bylaw renewal and kind of projects that administration's working on, but also projects that people like you are bringing forward. So it's, they have, they got to make decisions kind of on, on both sides that kind of align with city plan. So I think that's, that's interesting. And I'm happy that you're confident and happy with the direction that, uh, that they're going so far. I'm optimistic. That's a good way of putting it. That's a better way of putting it. Um, let's. I want to circle back to uh, healthy communities because the city plan talks a lot about that. And I mean, over the last couple of years, I think health, mental health has been kind of a, a, a front burner topic that we're all kind of interested in. But how does kind of the missing middle um, or the direction towards more missing middle, how does that contribute to more healthy communities? People stacked on top of each other. You don't typically assume that's going to make people healthier in their in their brain box, but it does a little bit. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think we, we read a lot these days about social isolation and the health impact, you know, the toll that that takes on us as humans. Uh, and that's really real. So how do we, um, how do we combat that? And, you know, I think our cities and our city building and our housing configurations have a lot to do with it, or they certainly, they certainly play a role. There is research that shows that buildings at about 30 units are sort of the ideal uh, size 
for people to get to know one another and and feel comfortable running into each other and mixing with each other at that size. You're going to pretty much know everyone that lives in your building, uh, at least on a first name basis. So that's where the missing middle is. I mean, that's where medium scale development is in our mature communities. We see these little buildings going up or we're starting to see these approvals for buildings that will be going up on, you know, two to three lots. Um, these are pretty small buildings where I think that the neighborhood will exist within them. It creates a bit of a vertical, a vertical, it creates a bit of a vertical community in a way that isn't as apparent even in a high-rise tower. So, you know, I, I'm a high-rise dweller and I traditionally haven't known many of my neighbors. I mean, there's so many people around that I think it becomes really difficult to connect with people. Whereas when you're running into the same people over and over, that's really how community gets built up over time. It's just a series of small collisions and connections because you happen to live in the same place. And so I think fostering those or building communities to make it easier to run into people is a simple thing that we that we can all do. We, we actually just one more thing. We talked about amenity spaces. Uh, was it a couple episodes ago, Mariah? I think that's a good question here for Chelsea because um, amenity spaces they're a requirement in the zoning bylaw when you're building a tower. But what we end up seeing is a lot of duplication and unused amenity space. I know your building has a pool. Are you running into your neighbors at the pool all the time? Or what, what else do you have for amenity spaces that's, uh, that's giving you opportunities to run into your neighbors? Yeah, I think a lot of buildings do have amenity spaces, but they are not necessarily designed to foster interaction. Uh, so they're there, but you know, if I go play pool or go swimming in the swimming pool, typically, you know, it's me and my household. It's not me, you know, connecting with other people that live in the building. So I think I think amenity spaces really work uh, only if they're designed very carefully with and through this lens of fostering connection. And that's not necessarily something that we, I think, have traditionally done. I don't think that's been necessarily the purpose of these amenity spaces. I think that they're pri- like they're not private, they're in common, but they're sort of designed for the private user groups, not to bring people together necessarily. So um, I, I think, you know, in order to design places that people organically run into each other, we have to think about it and design it a little bit differently. So, you know, how do we have spaces in or adjacent to the lobby where people are coming in and out and then they happen to run into someone collecting their mail or using the gym there you know so it's it's I think there's some design considerations here to figure out how do we design for community when we have been designing for privacy for a very very long time not just in apartment buildings but in our um, lower density or smaller scale single family neighborhoods as well. The first high rise I ever lived in in Edmonton, Park Square, shout out Park Square. It was a high rise tower, it was a, an office tower that got converted into residential. So really weird floor layouts, but they had a gym on the main floor right off the lobby. And there were still times where, you know, you'd be in there and somebody would get off the elevator coming to the gym and they would see that, I, I don't take it personally, but they would turn around when they saw that there was a bunch of people in the gym and then, uh, and then go back upstairs. But because it was off the lobby, there was a ton of interaction, um, just even visually seeing all your neighbors. So it, it, it was the building that I learned the most about my 
neighbors. There's also a rooftop patio that was really cool. I agree with you, like with the location of these common spaces and amenity spaces makes a lot of sense too. The other building I, I used to live in downtown had a pool, but it was like off a back corridor. Like you couldn't even see it from the lobby. You had to access it through this like other staircase and stuff. And it made it maybe not unsafe, but it, it definitely made it uninviting to go and access. And I, I didn't feel like I wanted to go there. So um, I'm happy that you picked up on that. That was just more of a comment. No, I think it's really interesting. I literally just a few days ago was talking to someone about amenity spaces and buildings that's not in the planning world. And my brother-in-law, he just bought a house and the basement is half unfinished. And he's so excited because he'll get to stick handle and shoot around at the walls and there's no consequences for it. I'm not going to be wrecking the drywall. And I was saying, I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool if they had something like that in buildings. They're, a lot of people are changing their AGM meeting rooms into other spaces. I'm sure if they changed it into something that you can go shoot around in, that would bring out, especially in a city where hockey culture is really big, people down to that space i'm I'm sure you need a lot of soundproofing but (laughs) i think it would be well used i think it would be a fun thing you can bring your friends over and actually go use that space my gym is on the main floor it's okay used but the windows are out you look at four cars that are visitor parking so it's not very friendly uh and then it just feels very uncomfortable so i hate using the gym even though we just did a big reno for it and i'm sure my husband ellie would love it if he can go shoot around there and work on his shot he would go use it all the time so yeah type of use is is good but i also i like the conversation we had at the last episode i'm gonna tell people to go listen to it i think you were referencing alcarim his episode where he's trying to make the community the amenity space so he partners with like the coffee shops and the yoga studios and things like that with his building saying hey here's a membership go meet not just the people in your building but the people around you too and how you're integrated into your local community is just as important as how you're integrated into your building that you're living in so shout out to him go listen to that The last thing uh, that we're doing now is a call to action. But before we jump into Chelsea's call to action on how to be a great community uh, person, city dweller, shaper, uh, all the great things, uh, (laughs) Chelsea is also, we haven't done her intro yet, but she is the president of IDEA. I don't know how we have kept her for so long. Um, (laughs) For for Chelsea has to take calls for me almost on the daily. Um, But check out our website if you haven't already. We have tons of great information on there. We have tons of great members. Uh, And if you want to join the IDEA movement, give me a call and I'll help you with a membership. So Chelsea, what is your call to action to all of our listeners here today? What I would say is, you know, we started this conversation talking about the Child-Friendly Housing Coalition and how a little bit of focused action had some pretty major results in terms of changing the Human Rights Act here within the province of Alberta. We've also talked a lot about implementation of city plan and how important that is, but how that's not one decision, but that's really thousands of decisions that are going to be taking place over time. So what I would say to listeners as my call to action is to get involved in some of these decisions. And what I mean by that is actually navigate over to Google, Google City Council meetings, Edmonton, uh, go to their calendar, 
look at the agenda of what they're going to be talking about in the meetings over the next two weeks. They only publish the agendas two weeks in advance, so it's not overwhelming. Look at a couple meetings. Maybe there's urban planning committee. Maybe there's executive committee. Maybe there's a public hearing on land use matters. Take a look. Inevitably, there's going to be something surprising to you there. And send a letter. Send a letter. Write an email. Even call your counselor. Uh, you can just email all of them, though, by emailing the city clerk. Uh, the instructions are on the web page and say, I think this is a really good idea. I think this is a really great project. I think you should do this. I think you should support this. Um, they don't get a lot of positive feedback. And when they do, it's so important. I mean, people engage in various ways with the city. Um, but these face-to-face -face interactions, actually hearing from a real person who cares and who supports something is worth so much. So it's a little bit of effort that goes a long way. Uh, so I really encourage people to do it. It sounds like a lot, but really it's just a couple of clicks. City Council meetings, Edmonton, look at the agenda, shoot off an email, make a difference. Sounds like you're talking about a specific project, but that was uh, that was <laughs> really good. That was really good. Yeah, share our optimism in uh, in infill development and and help the process out. Yeah, there is always exciting things happening at council, which sounds not true, but I promise you, they <laughs> they talk about can you drink in a park? They talk about should this project move forward? They talk about how is your waste collected? Literally everything that happens in a city. They talk about every other day. <laughs> there is some way that council is moving items forward. So your voice does matter. Get involved. Uh, and Chelsea's right. They When they hear positive feedback, it goes a long, long way. So thank you so much, Chelsea, for taking your Friday morning uh, to hang out with Ryan and I and talk all about city building things in infill. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Chelsea's great. Isn't Chelsea great? Oh, that was such a great conversation. I love talking development with her. I always learn stuff when I talk to her. Yeah, you, uh, I don't know if you're sucking up because she's the president and does that technically make her your boss or? Does make her my boss. Uh, but as we talked about it <laughs> before we got onto the recording, uh, she mentioned that I'm quite headstrong. Uh, and a little stubborn. So I don't know if her and I have that suck up relationship as much as <laughs> like, <laughs> go for drinks and talk about development for way too long. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just classic Capricorn in you, obviously. But yeah, Chelsea is, she's very interesting. I, uh, I actually worked with her at the city of Edmonton very briefly before she left. She was nice to me. That's all I remember. And then I circled back to her and that's when, uh, when I joined idea was, you know, getting more advice from her. So I like to say I'm following in her footsteps. Hopefully. But uh, yeah, a few interesting things um, that came out of that. I, I want to talk about the missing middle because that tweet that she sent out a couple weeks ago about, you know, maybe the missing middle won't be missing much longer. I'm paraphrasing. But yeah, conversation around infill really has evolved before our eyes. Hey, yeah, it's like, it's so beautiful to see Edmonton growing into this new phase. Uh, I think five, 10 years ago, it was so much more um, us versus them, industry versus city versus community. No one was on the same page. But now we have so many great examples of how communities grow together, get more interesting and get more exciting, bring new people in that can bring new energy in. 
uh, and new businesses and all the new cute things like the new ice cream shops and go grab a glass of wine. Uh, but that only comes with density. And so now that we've seen small scale density scale up, uh, we're starting to see medium scale, which will only bring cooler and cooler businesses to the neighborhood. Yeah, there's, you know, I'm happy that we're in a different phase of the conversation here, because you mentioned 10 years ago when, you know, lot splits and skinny homes were seen as kind of a boon. And some people probably still think that's the case. I know there's some neighborhoods out there that are still fighting against that. But for the most part, we've moved on beyond that into into the missing middle which you know interestingly enough and and you're kind of foreshadowing a little bit with uh, the couple mentions about density there but we talk about missing middle in terms of height but not really about like number of units or type of units or that kind of thing chelsea said something very interesting in the episode there about 30 units kind of being the uh the gold standard or kind of the mark you want to hit for avoiding that social isolation or kind of the perfect number of units to to know your neighbors and have a social type building. I mean, let's talk about the number of units. Um, I lived most recently in an apartment building that had 64 units. How many are in your building? Uh, We have about 120 units in my building. And how many of those 120 units have you visited or know the people that live there? So anyone who knows me knows uh, I'm quite a chatty Kathy and have no problem talking to people. So I wouldn't say I know, I haven't been in a lot of units, but I know quite a few people in my building because even if you're on the elevator with me for two floors, I will ask you about your day and what you're doing and what you had for dinner and when you went to the grocery store last and what you bought and, every- and your social security number and everything that you like. And what kind of ice cream you like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so our experiences in elevators are very different. Um, I'm the guy in the corner typically pretending to look at my phone, um, waiting for the time to be over. That being said, if I'm engaged with, I will engage back. Um, Out of the 64 units in my condo building, I visited two other than mine. One was because uh, I had a water leak in mine that caused damage in theirs. And the other because I actually became friends with one of my neighbors. But um, regardless... It's hard to get to know people in a large building. You were talking about, you know, how in suburban contexts, you get out of one box, which is your home, into another box, which is your car, and go to another box, which is the destination. And you never really are outside. It's kind of similar in in larger apartment buildings as well. The hallways are very narrow, and I don't know about yours, but mine was pretty uninviting. Typically, you know, you're hopping in an elevator to go all the way up to that unit, so your chances of running into people are fairly light there. So yeah, 64 felt like a lot. And I I know a few neighbors uh, just kind of visually, uh, not so much on a first name basis. So if anyone, I think what we're getting at here is if anyone out there has a different experience, let us know, please point us in the direction of that. Because I think the the discussion around number and type of units, like Mariah is saying, is uh, might be the next frontier here once we clear the uh, the height issues that we're talking about. Yeah, and I think it goes back to some of that conversation we had around amenities and how we use them or design them uh, to make it feel more like a community. What uh, amenities did you have in your building and what did you like them? This is very triggering. I uh, bought the uh, I bought in that building because um, there was a pool that was being closed down at the time. So it was already closed. Um, and it was promised to me that it was going to turn into a gym. I thought that was awesome. And that was part of the reason why I bought in the building. Uh, six years later, there's still no gym. That pool is still closed. So there was a, so what, what actually was there, uh, like a, a small little library slash meeting room, 
uh, which I never used other than going to the AGMs and yeah, the, the closed pool and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, in, in downtown, the amenities are, are kind of at your doorstep, but still, I will be honest, I bought in that building because I thought a gym was going to be in there. What, uh, what about you and your That's so funny. That is the opposite for me. I love the amenities of my community. We have a gym. Uh, we actually had a smaller gym and then expanded closed our meeting room uh, and made it into a larger gym. And I, I don't like the gym, like the windows face, the garage, like the parking sp- spots outside, uh, all the equipment's faced away from the door. It feels really not safe. <laughs> and uh, I like, I just hate going there. Uh, I love classes. So I would I think if you could make that into a unit, like, you know, let someone live there. But yeah, anyways, I would rather see if you turn that into a place where people can go shoot around, like with basketballs or with hockey. I think that would be way more fun and inviting. You'd meet more people. I always thought it was interesting that we don't put like water fountains on our main floor with how many dogs we have in our building and how many people go out for runs. I think that would be a great place to meet people. But I do know that that would also create some plumbing issues and could end up add, uh, adding an extra cost to, the, to this uh, whole building. So I don't really want a lot of condo fees. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the trade-off. And also like just the entire talk about amenities, you know, it, it they, the needs of the building might change over time as the demographics kind of shift. So it's always kind of a moving target. Like the pool in my building made a ton of sense uh, when they built it in the 70s, I suppose, but doesn't make a lot of sense now um a gym might make a lot of sense now but when we're all plugged into the metaverse in 20 years it probably won't make sense anymore so it's you know needs change and amenities change and that's why having a little bit of flexibility in kind of the space size or location or that kind of thing i i kind of like that idea you could demise it as you need or rent it out i know there's in Chelsea's old building, there was a hair salon and a lawyer. I don't know if they're still there, but I thought that was kind of an interesting use uh, on, on kind of the main floor of a of a condo building. You're always going to need a lawyer and a and your hair to get did. So yeah, it's yeah. I think there's some interesting uses that way too. Yeah, I like having different things in a building. It keeps it alive at different points of the day. I'm a huge fan of home based businesses. Uh, and think that having lots of different skill sets in a building is great. Um, so we also talked a little bit about hurdles to infill. Uh, I know you and I have a lot of thoughts on that, but we should probably talk about different types of infill and their different hurdles. Yeah, the, the different scales thing is really interesting because like we talked about, the uh, conversation has changed quite a bit, but the hurdles, some of them overlap depending on the size of the scale or the location and that type of thing, but there's so many. You know, infrastructure costs is a huge one ideas working tirelessly on all the different aspects of infrastructure like it's not just your roads and your lanes and your sidewalks it's you know the power lines and the power grid and your water infrastructure and your sanitary infrastructure your storms infrastructure at in a lot of these older neighborhoods we still have combined sewers so that is a different problem than what you would deal with in other neighborhoods so infrastructure is a huge one it's really complicated i always talk about the complication of uh, infill development. You are trying to densify something and build something up 
on a site that it wasn't really designed for. So you're like retrofitting these sites. And like we said, the infrastructure is not really there for it. But the perception <laughs> from, you know, the community is is sometimes also not there entirely as well. So you, I think, made a really good statement earlier when we weren't recording that uh, I'm going to steal right now. And you said we didn't really bring the community along with us. We just kind of allowed infill development to kind of grow organically. And now we're at a phase where there's still some of those same battles being had on every single application. So those are kind of two, you know, density is really important for the amenities. Like we talked about the amenities in a neighborhood as well. So, you know, God, there's just so many hurdles. There's just so many hurdles and that doesn't even get into regulatory hurdles yet, which, you know, also haven't really evolved as quickly as the industry has. So we're stuck with kind of in some circumstances, these archaic rules that don't meet up with the current vision. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, when you talk about how our rules no longer align with the way that we build, uh, the needs of people today, our vision for getting to more of a net neutral uh, building standards, all of these things are changing and growing and industry is pushing on some and communities pushing on some. Uh, but what I think the city can all agree on is like our rule book does not work. And so that's why we're going through the whole change of the rule book. But that will need to come with a culture change, too, because we've been in the business of approving certain things for 30, 40, 50 years. And to have a big change of how we build neighborhoods, these 15 minute communities, it's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of boldness from people um, that were, you know, everyone's a person like you're used to comfort and change is difficult. But to get to those communities that keep schools open, have their park spaces utilized, and then also have businesses thrive instead of just like stumbling their way through like they are in this pandemic, which is just heartbreaking. You need foot traffic. You need people to get there by car, by bike, by bus, and you need density for all that to exist. One thing that you kind of mentioned was the infrastructure costs. The city of Edmonton, we have like a $500 million infrastructure deficit. But the great thing about that is none of that is like park spaces. None of that is libraries. None of that is schools. Those stuff need to be maybe repurposed, but they don't need to be completely rebuilt. Where if we just continue to build in new neighborhoods, we need to re- we need to build all that stuff. And that's so expensive, even though 500 million is a huge, huge price tag, unbelievably big. So we'll have to definitely make some hard choices. It could be so much worse if, <laughs> if we don't make this uh, correction right now. So I'm, I'm excited. I think we're on the move to make the correction. It is a culture change. It is a financial change. It is a planning changes. Um, It is helping the community understand that you need density for these amenities that they're looking for. But we can get there. I believe in us. I mean, look at how far we've come in 10 years. We're not fighting about lot splits in most neighborhoods anymore. And skinny homes are kind of everywhere. And even I live in a semi-detached, lots of semi-detached kind of everywhere. And that's normal. Somebody said on the weekend, like he likes the the semi-detached more than the two skinnies. So we're in a different stage of evolution now. And and yeah, it's it's definitely coming. Yeah. Well, and uh, now we've had a great conversation about Missing Middle. A long conversation about barriers to infill. I wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners. His name is Brett. Uh, he is an amazing designer in the city. And I think it's something we're going to, me and Ryan have talked about, start doing. Shout out to the people that, you know, let us know what's going well and what's going not well on this podcast to help 
bring you along in the story and build the, the community around in development. So thanks, Brett, for listening. And we will see you next time. Love you, Brett. See you later. Thank you.